Good morning, church. It's good to be here this morning. Is this mic a little loud? I sound loud. Maybe it's just in the monitors. Um, so, and you all know that I get loud, so um, I don't need to be too loud this morning. Welcome to all of you, our guests this morning. As Pastor Doug already mentioned, we just thank you for being here this morning. Uh, each week, God brings many new faces to this church. Uh, would you introduce yourself to me or one of the elder, other pastors? Uh, we strive to be friendly. It's just hard to get to meet everybody after a service. Uh, so thank you for being here. I just want to make a special mention of my wife's parents, even though they would not want me to do this. Uh, they're from Sacramento, and um, they, they worship and serve at a different church, and they just wanted to come visit this morning. So thanks, Mom and Dad, for being here. It's good to have you as well. Um, it is a joy to be with God's people today. Um, and we are going to wrestle with God's word this morning. And I mean wrestle. God is going to challenge us this morning, I think, in some profound ways. If you have a, a copy of God's word, and I hope you do, would you turn to Psalm 119? And we're going to be in verse 49. Have you ever felt like you're just the odd duck? You just don't fit in. You know, there's been a lot of times in my life where I just, I'm like, I clearly don't fit. It could be you're in a different culture and you're just like, uh, I don't speak your language. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something really dumb. Like when I was in Kenya and I hugged another man's wife. You don't do that in Kenya um, at all. And I'm like, so I asked one of my buddies, like, so that was awkward. And, and he's like, yeah, we don't do that because of jealousy okay, never doing that again, right? I was clearly the guy that didn't understand where I was at in the world. Um, maybe for you, it's been a, a job where you're just like, you know what, this is not a good fit for me. I am the one who doesn't fit. Uh, you feel like, where's Waldo all the time, right? And you're Waldo, right? You're the one that doesn't belong. Um, as Christians, there are times where we just feel like we don't fit. Just, there's no other way around it. There's no way to sugarcoat it. At the end of the day, you don't fit. You're like the alien creature with the third eyeball. And people look at you funny. And you're like, what, I'm normal. But you're really not. This morning, I believe that God's word's gonna push us to this central truth that remember God in a world that doesn't. That's the call of the Christian faith. We're called to remember God in a world that doesn't. And, and that means that at times, you and I will feel like we're the odd duck. Well, there are times where you might fit right in. You know, we wear similar clothes to people that don't know Jesus. And we drive similar cars and live in similar houses. But maybe the moment you open your mouth, you don't use the profanity of the world. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Or you actually speak to a conviction that you hold because of scripture and they're like, okay, would you stop talking? Because we're not interested in what you have to say, right? It's just clear, like I don't fit. And, and so this morning, God's word is gonna push us in that direction. Let's read Psalm 119, 49 to 56 again. I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I, I mentioned that translation just so you know where I'm reading from. And if you have a different translation, just as a side note, there's a bunch of great translations of the Bible, okay? So don't feel like you've got to go get whatever one I'm reading out of. Um, I'm just reading out of this one because I think it does a good job in Psalm 119, 49 to 56, okay? Follow along in your copy of God's word. Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort. Rage seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. Your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. Yahweh, or Lord, I remember your name in the night, and I obey your instructions. This is my practice. I obey your precepts. Let's pray once again together. Father, would you direct our thoughts this morning? Would you help us as we're confronted with some hard truth this morning? 
Would you shape us, Father? Romans 12, 2 says that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Therefore, we all have areas of our minds that need to change. And that's hard work. Because at the end of the day, we think we're right. Your word confronts us and your word challenges us. And so, Father, my plea with you this morning is that we all would hear from your word and we would submit to it. We would not for a moment think that we know better or that we have the right answers, but that we would hold to your word full of grace and full of the compassion of the gospel, but yet we would hold the truth. So Father, we plead that in Jesus' name this morning and in Christ's name, amen. So we are looking at what it means to remember God in a world that does not. The first thing I think we need to see here in verse 49 and 50 is that there's a beautiful reality. God remembers you. Look at what the psalmist starts off with. He says, remember your word to your servant. This is the only prayer of this psalm. If you are this section, you'll know, you, you may remember in previous weeks, there's a variety of sections where the psalmist prays. He says, Lord, remember me, or God be faithful to me. And he'll do that over and over in a particular strophe or section of Psalm 119. Well, here, it's the only prayer of this eight verse section. He says, remember your word to your servant. And just to be real clear, he doesn't pray this because God forgets. So he's not asking God, remember me because, you know, you have dementia and you're not going to remember. No, that's not the point. He's saying, God, remember me because I know you do and I know you will. But look at what he says. He, He pleads with God to be remembered because it matters deeply to him that God remembers him based on the promises of God. You'll notice that's the theme of Psalm 119, right? The word of God, the promises of God. I cling to what you have revealed. And so in verse 49, remember your word. Um, This, the, 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 the word for word is the revealed word of God. It even includes the covenantal promises of God. So he says, God, you have revealed yourself in your word. You've made promises to me in your word. And therefore I'm pleading with you based on those promises, remember me. Because there are times that I feel neglected by God. If you read Psalm 42, there's a popular praise song back in the 80s, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Well, if you actually read Psalm 42, what David is saying is, God, I want you, but I don't feel you. I want you like a deer wants water, but frankly, I don't think you're near to me right now. Have you felt that way? Well, you're in a season of life where you're like, I'm reading my Bible, but God, you feel so distant. Remember me. I know your word is true. So the psalmist is not saying, God, you've forgotten. He's simply saying, there are seasons of life where God, I need you to remember me. I need you to be faithful to your word. So as Christians, this side of the cross, we look at scripture and what promises might you claim? Well, you could just open your Bible and start reading, right? They're everywhere. But maybe you could go to Ephesians 1. Do you know you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? God's not holding out on you for one day. He's given you everything today. So you can go and read Ephesians 1, 4 to 13 and say, God, would you do this in my life? I don't feel this way. Or go to Romans 8 and say, God, you've promised to be good to me. You've promised to work all things for good, but right now I'm not feeling too good. So God, would you be true to your word? Would you remember me? And and then he says, in verse 49, that second part, in which you've made me hope. And we've talked a lot about hope because the world has the phrase, everything that glitters is gold. It's not. There's a lot of things that promises, a lot of things that promise hope that don't give hope. And the psalmist goes back over and over with, your word alone gives me hope. I can't find it anywhere else. So I go to your word and I go to your promises because I need you. Because frankly, we feel hopeless. I mean, this weekend, let's just be honest, a lot of people have put their hope in politics. Whatever side of the camp you fall on, there have been massive demonstrations over the last few days. It's gonna leave you hopeless. You you can't find hope there. I'm not saying you shouldn't care. I'm just saying don't put your hope in it because you will be disappointed. And here he says, the Lord, your word, remember it to me because interestingly enough, it says you've made me hope in it. Like your word is so motivating, it is as though God makes me hope. He grants me hope. He gives me 
hope. So we cling to the hope that God gives, and we are remembered by God. But look at verse 50, just to be real clear. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promises give me life. When you seek after God, it does not equal an affliction-free life. And we've said this so many times in Psalm 119, and we'll continue to say it because we need to be reminded of truth because the lies of sin are loud, aren't they? The lies of sin are incessant every day. The lies that God's not being good to you, that your life could be a little better, that you're not quite pretty enough, you don't get paid enough, you don't like your job enough, you're whatever, you just fill in the blank. The lies are loud. So we need to go back to truth over and over and over and be reminded of truth because truth needs to be loud in our hearts. And so he says, God, comfort me in my affliction. My life is still in pain. My life is still hard. Just because I'm seeking you doesn't mean the problems have been taken away from me. But look at, look at what he, he finishes the verse with. These promises of God that he pled, on, he pled on the basis of in 49, he says, they give me life. Have you noticed that in the sorrow of life, it seems to suck life out of you? Have you ever been so low you just would rather die? And that may be like, that's extreme. But some of you have, some of us have been there. Not that you're suicidal, but you're just like, Lord, it'd be just better to die and be with you. The sorrow just sucks the very life out of life itself. And here the psalmist turns and he says, the promises of this book, they breathe life back into the sufferer. They give me life. And so, Lord, I'm gonna turn to you and I'm gonna run to you and I'm gonna claim your promises because when life is being ripped from me, this book gives me life because the God of this book gives life. This is what Jesus, Jesus spoke about, right? That he is the one who gives life and life abundant. And so we turn to him. John six sixty three. The Savior said this, it's the Spirit who gives life. Listen to this phrase, the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all to do what? To give you life. To give any meaning to life, any satisfaction to life, any purpose to life, this world and your flesh won't help. But the Spirit of God gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You want to know life? and life abundance, and the restoration of life and affliction, then run to God. And he restores life. So it's really good for us to start off this morning by remembering these things. God remembers you. He remembers you. And when God remembers you, it doesn't mean all your problems go away. It simply means you have hope through suffering. That's really important, okay? Because the psalmist is, is on this theme of remembering. He says it three times in this eight verse section. The first one is, God, remember me. The next ones are going to be, I choose to remember God, but he's going to actually paint a pretty dark picture for us. He's going to, he's going to kind of keep going down if you will, but he starts off by saying, in whatever sorrow that comes, there's a God who remembers me and we need to hold on to that. So let's hold on to that truth. There's a God who remembers us if we are in Christ this morning. And just very quickly, before we move on to the next point here, you must be in Christ this morning for these promises to be true. I would hate for you to leave here today and say, wow, God remembers me, but you've never turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. You must turn to him this morning and believe the gospel. This isn't some self-help message that you leave with a spiritual shot in the arm saying, oh, that's great. I'm gonna live my life how I want reject God, but thankfully he remembers me. That's what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. This is for those who have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, acknowledging their sin before a holy God and saying, God, I'm done. I'm done running. And so I turn to you. And this morning you can do that even right where you're sitting. You can turn to Jesus and say, I'm done running. And I can turn to the God who saves and say, God, save me. Because we're not a room full of good people. We're a room full of broken people that God loves right? And that Jesus died for. So when we talk about God remembering, this is the context of his children. Those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, he remembers you. Let's go on in the word of God this morning. The second point is the reality of living in a world that doesn't remember God. Brothers and sisters, this is going to be a heavy topic. 
just want to prepare you. Sometimes God's word is, is like eating ice cream. And then other times it's like grape nuts. And it's not grape and it's not nuts. And we're not sure what it is, right? And you're just like, wow, man. I'm being honest. This is going to cause us to be challenged this morning and say, God, wow, okay. This is hard, but we need to just walk through the scriptures, okay? We live in a world that does not remember God. Verse 51, the insolent, that's a word for proud. The proud men, proud women of this world, they utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Here we see that suffering will come because of those who do not love God. Suffering will come because of those who do not love God. You see what he says there? The proud. That's, a, that's one of those Bible shorthands for the wicked. Those who run from God. And let's be honest, we've all been there. Uh, the proud man simply says, I know better than God. And how many times in your life have you said, I know better than God? Like every day. Okay, so, so, but the point here is those who have never turned to Jesus, they've never been transformed by the gospel. The scripture says they're proud men because the, the heart of the gospel is you must humble yourself before God. It demands humility. And here the point is those who are proud hate at some level those who follow Jesus. Now I'm not saying that we're gonna be hated by everybody who doesn't love Jesus. But I am saying that there are those who will cause the people of God to suffer. Like a friend of mine who simply lost his job for not lying for his boss. Maybe you've been there. And you just say, I've, I've got to side with God. And you suffer. And you're unemployed because you sided with God. There are proud, insolent people who resist the children of God, right? Or maybe you've been ostracized by a family because you simply stand with God. You're loving, you're gracious, but you just say, well, I think God says this. Then you're no longer welcome here because you sided with God. So the insolent, the pride, they utterly deride me. Isn't this what Jesus said in John 15, 18? They hated me. What's his next phrase? They're gonna hate you. That is not a message of American Christianity, is it? Come to Jesus. God loves you. Be ready to get hated. I mean, we leave that part off, you know? We're like, oh no, it's all roses and butterflies. Brothers and sisters, there is, there's agony in the cross. And we, there was that old, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, he would suffer. And we don't like that. We don't like suffering at all. We do a really good job of keeping suffering as far away as possible. But if we follow the Savior, guess what? We're going we're gonna to suffer. We're going to suffer simply because we're in a world that does not love our Savior. Oh, people can say, oh, we love Jesus. He was such a good teacher. He was such a kind person. He healed the sick. But don't you dare preach the ex exclusivity of Christ. Don't you dare say there's no other way to get to God but through Jesus. Don't you dare say you agree with the moral teachings of Jesus because he's kind of antiquated and doesn't know what he's talking about anymore right? So when we side with Jesus, we will suffer in this world. The insolent, the proud, those who hate God will utterly deride us. But look at what he says in verse 51. In the midst of that, I don't turn away from your law. He has an absolute solidarity with the word of God. A, a solidarity of, I am in complete alignment. I agree entirely Regardless of what the world pressures upon me, I align myself with God. That's the conviction of the Christian. That we just, we say, God, you're clear, I align myself with you. And we don't wiggle out of it. We don't try to find a way to be more palatable to society. We simply say, God, you've spoken, I agree. I mean, that's what, you see what he says? I don't turn away from you. To turn away would be to go his own way. He's saying, remember we've talked about the turning in, in, in Psalm 119? He's turning towards the word. The, road, the, the culture says turn away, and he says, no, I'm going to choose to turn towards the word of God. So I can suffer because I live in a world that doesn't love God, but I'm not going to compromise what I believe God's word says. That's what we need to hold on to this morning.
that when God speaks, we absolutely and implicitly agree, even if it results in, future, in more suffering for us. Even if it means you might not get a promotion. Even if it means you lose a sphere of friends and influence. I side with God every time. So he suffers and he sides with God. Verse 52 is kind of like the the cream in the middle of the Oreo, if you will. The two pieces of the Oreo in verse 51 and 53 are suffering and proud men. And in verse 52, he's going to just plant his flag once again and say, here's what I believe. 52, he says, when I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Here we just see once again, regardless of culture, he purposes to remember God. That's the word remember. When I remember your rules, I choose to remember your rules from old and I take comfort in them. Guess what? You take comfort when you're suffering. You tracking? That's the point. He's saying, so, so I take comfort in my affliction. Where? Where does he go, brothers and sisters? He goes to the rules of the Lord. The word of God, I take comfort there. So again, context of affliction, context of suffering. People that are happy and go lucky all the time with no problems in the world don't need to be comforted. Okay, that's not the psalmist. He is suffering. And in his suffering, he says, I take comfort here. This is where I turn. And that's good for us because we're really good to whip out our phones and turn to comfort. Right? Just Google it. And you'll find somebody that makes you happy. You'll find somebody that gives you a self-esteem boost for the day. You'll find somebody to agree with you, which is really what we want. We just want somebody to affirm our rightness. That's not what we need, folks. We need to turn to the word of God and say, Lord, even if I don't like it, I agree with God. You know that that's, that's okay as a Christian? I don't think it's a lack of faith to read your Bible and say, wow, God, that's hard. Like in my flesh, I don't like that. But I, I, I submit to you. Everything I read in the scriptures, I'm not like, oh boy, oh boy, God wiped out 125,000 people. Isn't that such a great story? Are you with me? You're just like, wow, wow, God, that was tough. But I agree with you. We're a holy, righteous God. And I may not always understand your ways, but I side with you. I agree with you. That's the point of verse 52. When everything around me is swirling and I don't understand it, I side with God. I agree with God. Regardless of what culture says, purpose to remember God. And that brings us to verse 53. And verse 53 is, is the grape nuts I was talking about, okay? Just telling you right up front, this is gonna challenge us as a church. Hot indignation. Translated passionate fury. Seizes me or grips me because of the wicked who forsake your law. The first thing we need to look at is that when you truly remember God, when you truly purpose to remember God, you will hate sin. You'll hate sin. You see what he says there? Hot indignation consumes me. I don't know how else to translate that except strong anger, passionate hatred, all right, you know, I'm not talking about the word you teach. Oh, kids, don't say the word hate. I'm talking about a God-directed, a God-driven hatred of evil. Like our God hates evil. Like our God is, is righteously angry over sin. That's the hatred we're talking about. Not a vitriolic, I'm gonna go bash somebody in, but a I have a hatred, a zeal that consumes me over those who reject God and his instructions. This is similar in my estimation to Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. In John 2, verse 15 and 16, why don't you turn over there? It's gonna be good. We're gonna kind of jump around the scriptures here for a few minutes. 
because I think it's important that we see these things in the word of God and you, just, you don't just take my word for it. John 2. Fifteen. This is, this is the Savior. Loving, compassionate, Jesus who died for us. This is the Savior. He made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That isn't, that isn't the picture of Jesus you see hanging over people's bathrooms. Right? This isn't the, oh, Jesus, he just is so warm and fuzzy. No, this is, this is the Jesus who is, who is seriously committed to the holiness of God. This is actually a, a more true picture of Jesus than what we often see depicted by artists. You see, what was happening is, is evil men were, were using the temple as a way to get rich. So you'd come to the temple and you'd have to buy sacrifices or exchange money or give money. And they would say, oh, your money's old. You have to exchange it for new money. But of course we get 10%. So we're trading your money in, but we're gonna keep part of it. So you have to give us more to give your tithe. Or, oh, I'm sorry, your, your dove, your pigeon, um, it's not good enough. Why? Because we're in charge. So you have to buy ours. Your, your sheep, your oxen, they might be the perfect firstborn. Doesn't matter. You have to buy ours. They had taken God's house and made it a place of evil business. And Jesus is infuriated. He didn't make a whip and say, hey, excuse me, everybody. Would you please leave the premises? That's not why you make a whip. Right? I mean, this is like Indiana Jones status. He's got the whip and he is whipping people. Get out of my father's house. And then some might ask, well, did Jesus sin? Absolutely not. Because his anger wasn't that he had been slighted. It wasn't you offended me. How dare you offend me? It wasn't some personal sovereignty that he was feeling was upset at the moment, like when we get angry at our children. It was you are defying God and I will side with God. I will agree with God every time. And if that means I drive you out of my father's house, then I will drive you out of my father's house because I side with God. Do you see this? We have our savior, I think, giving us a great example of Psalm 119, 53. Hot indignation consumes me because of those who disobey your law or disregard your law, your instructions. So when God's word is not obeyed, as followers of the one true God, we should swell with a righteous anger that says, it breaks my heart. It grieves my soul. I'm not angry at, at you necessarily. Like I'm not gonna take my anger out on you, but my heart is broken and my, my spirit is heavy because you disregard God. Now, before we continue, I need to step back and say, we have to be so careful of self-righteousness. So here's four things on self-righteousness. This is not self-righteousness because Psalm 119 is all about wholehearted obedience to God. We're not talking about, hey, you know what? I'm gonna live in sin, but you know what, Pastor Doug? I am so irritated by what you do. You need to obey God. No, no, we're talking about Psalm 119 is all about, the psalmist wanting to walk with God. We've covered that for seven weeks and we have, 20, we have uh, 15 left. And we're gonna keep hearing that. It's all about me walking with God. So this is not picking and choosing, oh, I, I'm, I'm offended by your sin while I do my own. That's self-righteousness. Here he's saying, I am so committed to wholehearted obedience and walking with God. That's number one. It's not self-righteous because our hearts are walking with him. Secondly, it's not self-righteous because we're not selective. Like I was just saying, we, it needs to be clear. We're not picking and choosing which pieces we want to believe of this book. That makes us hypocr hypocrites. That makes us judges of this book. 
And maybe some of you have grown up in Christian circles that they actually do. They sit over this book and they say, we choose to believe these parts. Like the Benjamin Franklin, or was it Benjamin Franklin Bible? Jefferson Bible? Yeah, it's the Jefferson Bible. Where he decided that he was going to take scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible he did not want to agree with. And so his Bible, the true, this is a true story, his Bible is full of, of edits because he sat as judge over God's word. We are not judges over the word of God. We are sitting under the word of God. And so we're not selective, self-righteous people sitting back and saying, how dare you do that? But we're okay over here. That's what theological liberalism has done for decades. We are underneath the word and we're not selective with how we handle the word, which is why we're even preaching this sermon today because it would be easier to skip. Number three, we're not self-righteous because we delight in both saving and transforming grace. This isn't my performance. This isn't me being a better person. This isn't you just living a more moral life. This is by God's grace, he saves you and transforms you. And we strive to live for him, but it's all through his grace. So we're not sitting back saying, well, we've arrived. We're religious do-gooders and you need our help. A lot of the world's religions do just that. We've arrived and we're gonna sit back and take pot shots at those who haven't arrived. We are not people who have arrived by performance. We are people who have been transformed by grace. And therefore we are accepted by God because of his grace through faith and repentance in the Messiah. So we're not self-righteous because we're not performance-based. And fourth, we're not self-righteous because we have been given lavish grace and therefore we delight in giving grace. When we talk about hot indignation consumes me towards wickedness, in the same breath, we're saying we give abundant grace. There is a God who is merciful and a savior who died for you. Would you turn to him? Are you following me? We're not sitting back like some so-called Christians and just screaming filth towards unbelievers and saying, how dare you do these atrocities and saying evil, horrible things. We simply say, we agree with God and there is a God who longs to save you. Would you turn to him? So that is not self-righteousness, not for a moment when we side with God because we side with him and then we plead with people to turn to him by his grace, through faith alone. So when we remember God, we will hate sin. You need to remember that as we go on in Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, go back there to Psalm 119, if you're not already. And we're gonna look at the second piece of this verse. How does he define the wicked? Well, he defines it pretty simply. Those who forsake law. They're proud and they forsake this book. That was true 3,500 years ago and it's true today. Those who forsake your law. Do you want a good definition of wickedness in your life and in our society? It's right here. Those who forsake the law of God. It's real simple. And so here again, I'm going to reiterate that when God speaks, we must side with him. He is so, the psalmist is so devoted to the word of God and he's so, I mean, that's the whole point of Psalm 119. I am devoted to your word. And that devotion leads him to a heartbroken grief when people disregard the word of God. You've been there. There are things that you are devoted to. Maybe the convictions of your family or beliefs that you have. And when somebody just disregards it, it produces grief. It produces sorrow. It's like, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. You know, maybe your family raised you a certain way and you went away from that path and oh, I wish they wouldn't have done that. It, there's sorrow and agony when deep love is involved. So here the psalmist has deep love for scripture and when it's not honored, it grieves him. It brings agony to him. And so I think the question that we should wrestle with this morning is, what should followers of Jesus today be moved with hot indignation over? What should cause us righteous anger? What are the rampant sins of our society, even the accepted sins of our society that God clearly speaks out against? What are the things that we should say, oh God, oh, I love all men and women 
and Jesus died for all people. But in the same breath, God, I am brokenhearted over sin. I am grieving over these particular sins because we don't have the option of neutrality. God doesn't give you that option. When you, when you repent and believe in Jesus, what you're actually doing is saying, I'm turning from my sin and I'm agreeing with God. That's the whole point of conversion. You're turning from sin and agreeing with God. So here we're saying we have turned. We don't have new, new, the, new, the neutral position is not an option, which is what we love to do today. Just don't take an opinion. Just say, I don't know what I believe. Just say that all truth is equal. We don't have that option because we have turned to Jesus. So as we begin to dissect some areas that should cause us hot indignation, I need to cover three more things. And you'll see why. The first thing I must make explicitly important this morning before turning to these evils that we should stand against is that we must deeply love all people. We desperately love all people regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their sinful choices. We love all people because Jesus died for all people and all people are made in the image of God and therefore we love them. This is not personal hatred. Do not leave here this morning thinking, wow, at Elk Grove Bible Church, they hate a lot of people. No, no, we're simply saying we, we're grieved over sin and we love people. And we're gonna call sinners to turn to Jesus. This love moves us to weep for people, not scream at people. If you scream at people and you think you're doing it because you love God, your love for God has gone awry. You, you are broken over sin and you love. I'm gonna share a story that I believe is, um, was just one of those God moments in my life. So this is not a story to say, be like me. Ever have moments where you just think God showed up and the spirit gave you wisdom? That, that's what this story is, okay? Because I, I don't like being the hero of my stories. But this story, I really believe God's the hero. How this looks in my life. One day I was uh, getting, I was in jury duty, everybody's favorite thing. Uh, you know, when you get to miss a week of work to go uh, sit at the courthouse um, and just keep going back to see if you are actually called. Um, so I was in jury duty. I walked down to Temple Coffee, which is right down the street. Um, and I, I, was, I was getting a cup of coffee and there's a, there's a, there's a couple outside and they're, trying to, they're getting petitions signed for the LGBTQ agenda. And I don't know how you respond to that, but I'm not a petition person. I'm very task oriented. Um, I, don't, I really don't care what you're wanting me to sign. I'm probably gonna just walk by because I've got a schedule to keep and places to go, right? And I had this prick in my heart, stop and talk to these people. One of those like, God, really? Like, I don't, I mean, I know that we don't agree, but I need to stop. So I stop and talk. And literally, folks, I didn't plan this conversation. That's why I say it was just an act of God. The first thing that came to my mouth was, I have a question for you. Is it possible to love somebody and disagree with them? I don't know where that came from. And this, this couple looked at me and they said, well, I think so. And I said, I have another question. Do you think Jesus was a loving person? Oh, absolutely. Jesus is the most loving person that ever lived, most likely. I said, I totally agree. Do you, you know what I think, though? I think that Jesus disagreed with a lot of people. He spoke truth to hard settings. And, and yet, in those moments, he still loved people. So, this morning, I can't sign your petition but I want you to know that I love you and there's a savior who died for you. And I walked away and I'm in line getting coffee and I had another one of those spirit of God moments. Buy them coffee. Do you know how expensive Temple is? Okay, <laughs> like, it's like, I don't want to buy them coffee. All right, God, buy them coffee. So I buy them coffee. I take it out and I give them coffee. And they, it was just, it was just one of those stories that I'm just like blown away by. They, they said, can we hug you? This has never happened. <laughs> Where somebody that disagrees with us loves us. And I just, that's where it's not me because I'm not that loving. Where I just said, Lord, like this was, I needed that experience. 
And God knew that I needed that experience because we have to side with scripture, but love people. And we don't do that well. We like to shout our arrogance from the housetops and argue with everybody to prove why we're right and they're dumb. And God just, he says, no, no, stand with me and love people. So this morning, you actually might be here and hear some truth that you're uncomfortable with because maybe it ident- it, it's part of your past. We love you. We're not sitting in judgment of you. We're simply saying we wanna see, see what God says. So the first thing we need to hold on to is that we love all people. The second thing is we, I've already said this, but I'm gonna say it again, we give grace. Folks, have you been given grace this morning? If you're in Christ, you should readily agree with the Apostle Paul, but formerly I was, and fill in your blank. Just, just take a minute, what's your blank? I mean, Paul had a pretty bad list. He killed people, blasphemed the gospel, insolent opponent of Jesus. We, we all have our lists. And then we have, but I received mercy. So we give mercy, we give grace. So when we stand with God, when we side with God, it doesn't give us a graceless Christianity. It should give us a, gra- a, a Christianity that oozes grace, that just pours forth grace, that somebody knows, wow, you side with God, but you are the most gracious person I have ever met. Even though we don't see things eye to eye, even though you're just, you just condemned my lifestyle, wow, God has definitely done something in you because that is not normal. So we love people, we give grace. And then the third point, again, we've touched on it, is that we are not gonna pick and choose which laws of God to accept or reject. That is not tolerable. You see, there is, in every period of church history, there are laws and instructions in this book that are more or less acceptable. You, you may know the story of William Wilberforce. In the late or the early 19th century, he stood against the entire British parliament, the greatest global superpower. And he said, God hates slavery. Now, all of us in this room today would be like, yeah, amen, preach. Can I tell you something? You, you wouldn't have in the early 1900s. Wilberforce did, and he almost died because of it. So you follow what I'm saying? Today, 250 years later, we are all in agreement with Wilberforce. But 250 years ago, he stood alone, and he agreed with God, and he was right in doing it. Praise God. And, 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 and he got the entire British government to at least sign saying, we abolish slavery and we should celebrate those victories for God's truth. But why do I bring that up? Because in every era of church history, there are things that are more or less popular, right? Things that that society says, how dare you? So today, as we're gonna talk about in a minute, we all should stand and say, we hate every form of racism. And we we should hold to that till we die because it's in this book. But you know what? There's some other truths that may not be so culturally acceptable today. And we should hold to those too. So we don't pick and choose which things to hold on to. We simply open this book, we read it, and we say God has spoken. And therefore, we are bound in our conscience to agree with it. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When God says this is right and good and culture turns around and says, no, actually, we're gonna disagree with God. God, the, the woe in Isaiah is the term for cursing. The curse of God be upon them who call good what I call, or call evil, or good what I call evil. And so we need to look carefully at what are the non-negotiables for us today? What are these areas that we side with God and when we see them in society, hot indignation consumes us. So as we look at four areas this morning, please remember what we've already said. We spent 40 minutes getting ready for this. And if you forget the last 40 minutes, it's not gonna go well for you. Seriously, because you're gonna, you're gonna hate me and you're gonna hate God because you're not gonna see what God says. So let's look at this together. The first one I want to pick on this morning 
is in my estimation one of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world. In 1973, the United States Supreme Court made it legal to kill innocent children. And since that day, over 57 million children have been killed. That's 10 times worse than the Holocaust. Now I know that saying that is hard because we have in this room been touched by abortion, directly or indirectly. And God loves and there is grace. So hold on to that. We're simply siding with God. And when in, in, in Psalm 139, the psalmist is so abundantly clear. We, we can't get around it. This is not a political issue. This is not simply because it's, it's right to life Sunday and there was some march on Friday. That's not what this is about. Psalm 139, 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when yet there was none. Regardless of what culture, regardless of what science says, we side with God and, and we should be broken hearted over, over what's happening in our society. It should grieve you to the point of tears, not to the point of blowing up a Planned Parenthood, not to the point of being violent and angry to those who are touched by this, to the point of saying, God, I'll do, I'll do whatever I can to change this. I actually believe that this is one of our Wilberforce moments as American Christians. Will we side with God? And will we say, you know what? In a culture of death, we side with God. And we, we can do no other. This is considered good in our society, isn't it? Abortion is not called killing of children. It's called the right to choose. It's called a whole bunch of pretty things. Woe to those who call evil good. And so as Christians, brothers and sisters, we side with God and we love and we give grace and we plead because the need is the gospel. But we have a heavy-hearted zeal because of those who disobey the law of God. I told you this morning was going to be tough. That's tough. Secondly, we must side with God in regards to racial injustice. Now, some of you are going to say, well, Pastor Justin, don't get political. This isn't political. This is God. These aren't political issues. So I just, I just, I'm going to pick this morning right out of the gate some of the two most political issues in our nation today. And I don't care about politics, people. I care about the scriptures. I care about the word of God. I don't care what news channel you watch. I don't care what talk show hosts you like, but we should care about God. And when God speaks, we just say, okay, God, I agree with you. And when we see evil in society, we should be grieved over it. That's the point. So I picked on the sanctity of human life and we must look at the issue of racial injustice. James 2.1 is a principle that directly applies to all forms of, of racial injustice. James 2 and verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now we could go on and develop James 1 and see the, where James goes with these instructions, but we don't have time for that right now. We're simply saying that James says, show no partiality, why? Because all people are made equal in the image of God. And therefore, we equally love all people. We don't have a, a, pref a preferred culture. We don't have a celebrated, well, this really is a, a higher form of humanity or culture. No, no, we love all people. And we are eager to show the love and compassion of our Savior to all people. Regardless, regardless 
of race, ethnic background, culture. You know, there's a, there's a lot of forms of partiality. Isn't there? I mean, James goes after socioeconomic partiality. But man, we could, that list is huge. You look different than me. You smell different than me. You eat different than me. You live different than me. You talk different than me. You have different interests than me. You have different hobbies than me. You have different political parties than me. And we could just keep going down that list of all the reasons we show partiality. And as believers, when we see partiality in the church or in society, we should burn with righteous anger. We should just cause it to swell up and say, God, Oh, Genesis 1 is so clear. All people made in the image of God. The scriptures are so clear that Jesus died for all peoples. And we love all peoples. And we're brokenhearted over the brokenness of our society. Is that, are you moved to brokenheartedness over society? You should be. You should be. It should cause you grief. Not anger at some other group of people. Are you following me? It's anger towards sin. This is a sin problem because we have a real pride problem. And so then societies all around the globe for millennia have fallen apart because of partiality. And it should grieve us as a church. And we should care enough to do things about it. But yet again, just like the sanctity of life, this doesn't mean that we do ungodly things. It doesn't mean we, we spew ungodly rhetoric. It doesn't mean we, we are okay with ungodly responses. But we should say, oh God, according to your word, what can I do to fight this? Because I want to see this change for the glory of God. It grieves me when people don't obey your law. So we should have a righteous anger over this. I've got more. There's another one. Number three. And this is gonna be this is gonna be hard because this touches many, many of us. So remember, grace, love, gospel. The disintegration of the institution of marriage. Ephesians five is clear. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. Uh, an eternal covenant that cannot be broken. And every time a marriage falls apart, that covenant, the picture of that covenant is shattered. You know that the picture of marriage as the covenant between Christ and his church wasn't a divine afterthought? It's why God created marriage. Ephesians 5 didn't come like, oh, what a good idea. I'll use marriage to picture Christ in the church. He created marriage to show the beauty of Christ in the church. And when that falls apart, it grieves the heart of God. And I know many of you in here would have walked through divorce and you would agree with that. You would say divorce is painful. Maybe I was a Christian, maybe I wasn't, but I know that it grieved many, including God. And again, this isn't a judgmentalism on anybody here this morning. This is simply, God is clear. We have lost touch with this reality of marriage being a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman that is so clearly depicted in scripture. And we've kind of, divorce is kind of the fait accompli of society. You know, what's gonna happen? Just make a run as long as you can and enjoy it. Because it's gonna fall apart. And I would say you're right apart from Jesus. Because when you put two sinners together, they're gonna fight. And they're going to have conflict. And then the gospel enables you to actually work through your problems and reconcile and love one another and praise God for his common grace to all people that many unbelievers can have a good marriage to. We praise God for that grace. And so we side with God. You know, there are very few sins in the scripture God said he hates. But he does say I hate divorce. That doesn't mean that divorce is the unpardonable sin. It just means that it destroys the picture of the covenant and therefore it grieves God. And we should be a place that says, oh man, we cherish marriage. Not as the end all for everybody. I'm not talking about marriage for singleness. I'm just saying we cherish marriage because 
The institution of marriage is a good gift of God. And divorce is never the answer. God longs for marriages to stay together whenever possible. Sanctity of life, racial injustice, the disintegration of marriage. I'm going to do one more. And this one is going to be hard to tiptoe around. The sexual revolution of the late 1960s, early 1970s began to redefine marriage in a covenant or sex between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage as something that you just do for fun. Terms like safe sex just became normal. That you just, as long as it's consensual, it's okay. And that's, that's just swept through our culture today. And that's where the sexual revolution started. And we would side with God and say heterosexual sex outside of marriage grieves the heart of God. And therefore we side with God. We don't, we don't take pot shots at people. We don't, we don't get angry at people. We simply say, God's clear. Sex is for marriage. You can't redefine it. What happened in the sexual revolution was it didn't stop there. It began to be, go down the road of whatever makes you happy, you can do it. If you want to have, if you're a man that wants to have sex with men, makes you happy, you can do it. If you're a woman that wants to have sex with a woman, you, you can do it. And now we have the LGBTQ movement. And actually that acronym is continuing to grow. Please don't misunderstand me this morning. We love all people. We give grace to all people. We plead with all people to be saved. The problem with the immoral heterosexual and the immoral homosexual is not their sexuality, it's Jesus. They don't need to be confronted on their homosexuality or their immoral heterosexuality. They need to be confronted with their need for the gospel. So we take Jesus to them and we love them with the savior. We simply agree with God and we simply say, God, this is not your plan. This is not what you designed. Men and women, can I just be real honest? God did not make a mistake making you a man or making you a woman. God didn't make men in women's bodies and women in men's bodies. There is a God who is sovereign over all. And he creates men and women good in the image of God. Now I'm not saying that you may or may not struggle with same-sex attraction. I struggle with a lot of sinful temptation. And the answer is still turn to Jesus. So we're not talking about same-sex attraction this morning. We're talking about a culture that has embraced an ethic of sexuality that says, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else and it makes you happy. And God says no. Are we willing to side with God this morning? You, you might have been here a long time at EGBC. This might be your first week and you're like, wow, I picked a doozy. I hope you can see that we are simply siding with God. We could read through Romans 1 of God talking about those in their reprobate minds who exchange for the goodness of what God created in sexuality for evil. Women doing with women what was unacceptable, men doing with men what is unacceptable, clear definitions of homosexual and lesbian practice, and God says it's sin. And they need Jesus, just like we all need Jesus. So if you hear anything this morning, would you hear that? We all need Jesus. We're not picking on a particular sin this morning. We're not saying that if you've been touched by any four of these categories or other things that God's word speaks out against, that you are somehow less of a human being. You are somehow outside of the reach of grace. I'm simply saying you're exactly the one Jesus died for, just like the rest of us. Jesus died for sinners like us, folks. So we agree with God and we say anger is a sin and abuse is a sin, and drunkenness is a sin, and laziness is a sin, and discontentment's a sin, and covetousness is a sin, and the killing of unborn life is a sin, and racial injustice is a sin. You follow me this morning, folks? We are so bound by this book, and so we side with it every time. This morning, the the theme is simple, remembering God in a world that does not. 
And I'm gonna finish up here, even though there's three verses left in this section. Very simply, these three verses, after what the psalmist just said, he purposes to remember God. I don't know what sins filled the psalmist's minds in verse 53, but you know that he had a list. And that list agreed with God. And so this morning, when we read that text, we should have a list that agrees with God. These aren't pet peeves. These aren't opinions. These are, we agree with God every time. And then he, and then it was crazy. Look at what he does. He turns. So after this heavy, like, oh my goodness, what a passage. He says, God, your statutes, your word, they've been my songs. I remember your name in the night and this blessing has fallen me that I've kept your word. We see three simple things as we finish. Truth leads to worship. What's been his songs? The written word of God. It's what causes me to rejoice. In the midst of a society that has forgotten you, your word causes me to rejoice. And so folks, I think we need to be careful because some Christians get real melancholy. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, it's just terrible. Read your Bible, you'll rejoice. There is a God who is good and you can rejoice in him even in a world that's neglecting him. So the psalmist immediately turns to rejoicing. It's interesting that in that midst of rejoicing, he says, in the house of my sojourning, which means in this world that's forgotten you, I know, I'm a stranger. I don't fit. Just like Hebrews 11, we're strangers and exiles waiting for our heavenly home. We don't belong here, we get it, but we're gonna rejoice in you while we're here. So we're worshiping you, God, we're, we're delighting in you. Here again, verse 55, he remembers, that's our theme, remembering God. I remember you at night. When I put my head down at night, I choose to remember you. In the midst of a world that's spinning and evil, I remember you. Might be good for some of us to turn, our, turn the news off and just remember God. And just say, God, I remember you. I know that this world is full of evil, but I'm choosing to remember you. Right now in this moment, remember God. And then he finishes with an interesting statement. This has come to me. Some translations say, this blessing has fallen to me. I keep your precepts. He finishes with just, in this world that rejects you, I'm just gonna keep obeying you and keep following you. And is that not the whole theme of Psalm 119? Verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And he spends the next 160 verses answering that question, how can I walk with God according to the word of God? And so after coming through this section on the, the world that's running from God, he says, God, I'm gonna keep your word. I'm gonna follow you because that's all I have. And that's enough. And so may we rejoice this morning that we're remembered by God. In all the heaviness of Psalm 119, 49 to 56, remember that you, if you're a child of God, God remembers you and delight in him for it. And then as you remember that God remembers you, don't ever forget you're in a world that's forgotten God. Because if you forget that, you're gonna be a mess. But when I remember that, it actually is somewhat comforting because I'm okay with the shenanigans around me because I can say they've forgotten their God. And so therefore their behavior is very normal because they've forgotten their God. So we remember we're in a world that doesn't remember him. And then we're resolved to side with God regardless of culture. EGBC, be a church that sides with God. When you turn on the news, when you read an article, when you're in a conversation and you have that moment of temptation to say, oh man, if I just didn't have to say that right now, if I didn't have to believe that right now, life would be so much easier. Side with God. Be resolved that no matter what, I side with God, even when culture doesn't. And then in all of that, might we be a place with humility and the fullness of gospel compassion, we love all people. That we stand with God and we don't compromise that stand, but it would be the most loving stand in the world. And people would come in these doors and say, wow, they just told me I was a sinner. And they hugged me and told me Jesus loved me and that he died for me. Wow, what love.
Because the most loving thing we can do is hold the truth. You know that? The most unloving thing we can do is to deny God's truth and say that you're all okay. But we hold the God's truth and we say, no, we love and therefore we hold the truth and we lift up the grace of God found in the gospel for all people, such as we are. Can we pray? There are times when we open your word and it's, it's really hard. And yet it's really good. And so I plead with you this morning, first for those who have been really challenged by what's been shared from your word. Some who are hurt and don't know what to think. Father, would your word minister grace and comfort and truth to those? And would you just able us to see that there is a God who's full of mercy and grace, even in our brokenness. And even when we are confronted with past and present sins that we don't know what to do with, we can turn to the Savior who died because of these very sins and know amazing grace. Father, I pray for those who might be jaded or maybe callous to some of these issues that are more concerned about being right than loving and might Might we be changed to be a deeply loving church, to be a church that that just pours forth the compassion of Christ, even as we hold to clear issues that are God issues. Father, might we for, for years to come, regardless of what society says is right and good, that we would simply and faithfully align ourselves with God, never being the judge of this book, but letting it judge over us and agreeing with God every time. Regardless of what that means and what consequence that brings. Father, would you work in our hearts? Would your word do its work as Isaiah promised? Would it be like water that comes down from heaven and waters our souls? And in Christ's name, amen.